HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you four stories about lost and found culinary treasures. We are searching for what will be lost, and we're trying to rejuvenate it. What we try to do is collect these sourdoughs that contribute to the biodiversity of sourdough in order to store them, to document them, and be able to preserve them for the future. It's bringing back the history and just being part of that time that just, it's, there's nothing like it. You know, there's, there's nothing like it. When fame comes late, uh, I'm sure it's just as sweet as when it comes earlier. <laughs> Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and Three. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And you know, the Basque region of Spain is a food lover's mecca. From the endless varieties of pinchos, the small bites like tacos that are offered at hundreds of bars, to rustic cider house dinners, and from more than 20 Michelin-starred restaurants, to the historic private gastronomic clubs, there is clearly a strong culture of food and dining. San Sebastian, located in the northeastern area of the Basque region, and once just a humble fishing village, is at the center of all this gastronomy. On a recent trip to San Sebastian, I was curious as to how this all came about, and I had the pleasure of meeting up with a San Sebastian native and a culinary tour guide who gave me a wonderful tour and history of the area, Lourdes Erquicia. And Lourdes shares the his, shared the history of the region and its food traditions. She's a culinary guide with Mimo Food in San Sebastian, and... Her, she can trace her family back in the Basque region for at least a couple of generations, I'm sure. Welcome, Lord. Hello, Linda. How <laughs> are you a, doing? It's a pleasure to have you here. And um, I, I mentioned that you are a culinary guide with Mimo Food. Can you tell us a little bit about Mimo Food, which was formerly known as the San Sebastian Cooking School and still is a cooking school? What exactly does Mimo Food offer? 
Well, Mimo started at San Sebastian Food just uh, offering um, anything that had to do with gastronomy and with wines, just to show any visitors what uh, the Basque Country really was about. Uh-huh. Um, we started as a very small company and have been growing and uh, adding new experiences. And now I think uh, we can offer a great array of experiences for anybody that visits our city. Well, I I had the um, the privilege of, of being able to see the cooking school, the new cooking school um, that mm-hmm. is in the um, in the hotel location, the Maria Cristina, the gorgeous Maria Cristina Hotel in San Sebastian, and. That's that's quite an operation. That's uh, you know that it's beautiful. Well, uh, it does actually. We were extremely lucky because uh, we had been doing cooking classes for a few years, but we always did it, uh, did the classes in restaurants and gastronomic societies. And actually, we never had full control of the of the classes, so we decided to look for a location. And as we work so much with the Maria Cristina Hotel, they offer the space they had in the spa in the basement of the hotel. And this is how really the, the cooking school developed. And actually now we are offering uh, daily cooking classes nonstop. Wow, that's that's quite a growth. Um, John Warren is he is he the owner still? It was John Warren is the owner and the founder. He's a crazy British man that came to San Sebastian on holidays and actually fell in love with the city. I can understand so that. <laughs> Sorry. I can understand that falling and coming into the city and falling in love with it definitely. Well, definitely. I mean, he was working in banking in London and gave up his career, came here and started working in a hotel. So when he realized that everybody was asking him where to eat, where to go, what to do, the idea grew up and and he developed the company and it's been absolutely wonderful because really I think he understood that it was extremely important that uh, it was locals who have to do the job. So he contracted uh, not just me, but a beautiful team of people that runs the, the business now with him. Uh-huh. Well, that brings me to you. Tell me a little bit about yourself, what you've been in, in the hospitality business for a long time, but you've been in the Basque region for a long time as well. Well, actually, I was born here, of course, and I grew in the old town of San Sebastian until I was 22 years uh, old. My parents had a bar for a while. My father uh, was a squid fisherman and my mom was a cook. And so I grew within the ambience. And when I moved to London, I carried on working on restaurants. And so did I when I came back from London. I worked in a few hotels and... When they offered me this job, I thought, well, what a wonderful opportunity <laughs> to really uh, get together with people from all around the world and show them what we are about. Well, certainly your your love of the Basque region runs very deep. And you were telling me about how you had the opportunity to um, trace some of the generations back in, in the town archives. How, how many generations of your family have been in that area? Do you know? Well, um, to the two sides of the family, on my father's side, uh, as long as we can trace. Huh. Wow. We all have very Basque surnames, and we definitely come originally from this area. On my mother's side, there's a little bit of a mixture. Um, part of my mother's family comes from Navarra, which is the region next door. With, uh, but uh, really, I mean, a long history, Basque country and Navarra have been all one kingdom. So we consider to be Basque, 100%. <laughs> well, the Basque language and culture is is definitely an ancient one. Um, and it traces back to the 12th century, right? 
Well, actually, the, the Basque language is a mystery. You yeah. know, they reckon it's one of the oldest languages in Europe. They, uh, it's completely different to, to Castilian, to Spanish language. And along the years, they tried to find connections with Nordic languages, with Eastern European languages, Celtic, even North African, and came to the conclusion that it was unique. So probably one of the most difficult languages as well. But really beautiful and very poetical. It, it is amazing. And, of course, the spelling throws everybody because it's, it's a very it strange yeah. way of spelling things. Um, but the culture and the settlement of San Sebastian itself um, traces back, traces some of the buildings, traced back, yes. did trace back to the 12th century. But now everything seems a bit more modern. Fill us in on, on what, why, you know, how it developed. Well, what, how, did, well, how did that area develop? Well, in reality, San Sebastian, uh, as such, started uh, in one of the ends of the bay, in what we know now as Antiguo, the old neighborhood. And there, apparently, there was a monastery on the honor to San Sebastian. And farmers from the surround area started exchanging products, and it became a commercial area. Um, as we belonged to the Kingdom of Navarra, they were extremely interested on having uh, a harbor that could be the center of the importation of uh, foreign products. So um, really became a very important uh, part of the, um, of the commercial uh, richness of the, of the country. And, uh, of course, we were also fishermen, uh-huh. very well known for whale hunting and uh, cod fishing. So everybody concentrated around the harbor area, and that's how the city grew. But really, it doesn't look that old because it burned down, unfortunately, in 1813. Ah, the wars. Yeah, Yeah. well, you know, everybody was in war with Napoleon on these years. And when the French took the city, we basically, we couldn't manage by by ourselves. And we had to wait five years for the British and the Portuguese to come to give us a hand. But it didn't work out as they expected, and by burning the French arsenal, the whole city took on fire. Wow, and that's why it looks. Yes. It has that. It has a more recent, um, you know, eighteenth, nineteenth yeah. century look to it. Yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, the site of the old town is uh, is posterior, of course, to, to eighteen hundred and thirteen, and then there is the center, which I consider the most beautiful part of the city, mm-hmm. which we also call the romantic area. This started being developed a little bit later, as from the middle of the eighteen hundreds. Because San Sebastián really became, as you well know, uh, a holiday destination for aristocracy and royalty. Uh huh. And how did? What about the? So, right, the Queen came. Everyone, so everyone uh-huh. said that must be the place to be, right? And everyone started going. But what exactly. about? Um, and and obviously fishing was important, as you said. Um, so they had to prepare the fish, and of course, what did they eat? They ate the fish, but. The the farming. I mean, there's such the, such fertile ground. The farming is very rich in that area. It is. So, I mean, I think we are extremely extremely fortunate because although we are a very small region, we have beautiful green hills and mountains. We have amazing animals like uh, our own uh, race of uh, uh, sheep, which produce an amazing milk to make fantastic cheeses. We have uh, cows. Uh, you said about the fish. Of course, we have beautiful vegetables. So for many, many centuries, we managed to supply ourselves. Uh-huh. Uh, apart from the fact that we didn't have much wheat, as this is very green, 
So most of our breads and products were made uh, with corn. Uh, otherwise, we, we were very uh, autosufficient. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I can see a couple of reasons for that, too. I mean, the location is not an easy location for um, for bringing other products in. It's, it's, it's gorgeous, but very mountainous, very hilly, very kind of secluded and, you know, and removed, except for the port. And you have the, you know, you're on the water. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, precisely, precisely because of that, the mountain ranges that we have underneath by the Riojan area, and the Pyrenees, it always kept us very isolated. So uh, within the north part of Spain, uh, also the area of Santander, Asturias, Galicia, we were the only part of Spain that wasn't conquered by the Moors. So there's no, there's no African, there's no Moorish African influence? Is, hmm. Exactly. We, we don't use spices. Uh, our cuisine is all about very simple, fresh product. And we have that philosophy that there is no need to touch things. There is no need to cover flavors. So you will never find in any kitchen, uh, unless it's somebody a little bit younger that has traveled, things like cumin, you know, and right. even black pepper is exotic in some houses. Mm-hmm. Except, well, there is, but there is a lot of uh, saffron. You have <laughs> a lot of saffron. Well, the saffron, the saffron actually comes uh, from La Mancha area which is um, to the uh, east of Madrid. That's the area in Spain where they produce more saffron. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use a little bit of paprika, which normally we use to give color to stews, but not much more, much more than that, really. Yeah. Well, you had told me one time when I was asking about the, um, the evidence of not many spices and, and was just the natural mm-hmm. flavors coming through. You said on the table you wouldn't, and ordinarily find even a shaker of black pepper. No, and, and in most of the restaurants, you won't even find the salt in the table hmm. because the way uh, we give, uh, we enhance the, the flavors is by adding quite a lot of salt, which I know some people consider not to be very healthy, but it, this is the way we really uh, uh, manage to, uh, to get all the beautiful flavor, the, all, all, all the fresh products, just with salt. Right. And when you go to the restaurant, you have to ask for the salt. <laughs> um, well, you made some mention to um, uh, oh, the sheep and, and the animals and all the local farming. The mm-hmm. cheese, there's a wonderful local cheese. Um, yes. Uh, you'll have to pronounce that for me. Idi- the well, Idiazabal? It's Idi- exactly, Idiazabal cheese. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a cheese with, that we produce uh, inland about, I suppose, about 30, 40 minutes from San Sebastian. And it's produced uh, with the milk from a sheep that's called Lacha. It's an autochthonous sheep. And, uh, well, this sheep has a very uh, thick, woolly, um, waxy coat that keeps the content of fat very high on the milk. Mm. And we managed to produce beautiful cheeses. Uh, the most traditional is the ones that they are still being made by the shepherds. And we love the uh, a version that's smoked. Ah, yes. It's absolutely beautiful. So uh, I know everybody comes flabbergasted by manchego cheese to Spain, mm. but trust me, there's some beautiful cheeses around. Oh, I, I know, and I tasted many of them, and I was, I was, I'm convinced that they are definitely excellent regional specialties. <laughs> Um, speaking of regional specialties, my, you know, I mentioned that there were, of course, the pinchos, and we'll talk more about those. Uh, there are the sausages, the, what is it, chistora? chistora the chistora. Sausage? Is that like yes. chorizo? Is that? 
Yeah, I mean, chistorra is a fresh version of the chorizo. Uh-huh. You have to um, take into consideration that although we are probably the biggest uh, consumers of uh, cured meats in the country, we cannot cure them ourselves because our weather is very humid. And what you need really is a very dry, cold conditions to, in order to cure them. So our chorizo is fresh, it's quite thin, mm-hmm. and uh, actually we eat a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I saw, and, and grilled and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and served yes, with sometimes a... cooked with cider uh-huh. uh, or a little bit of white wine. We put it in stews as well. And there is a date in, on, the, on the 21st of December, that's Farmer's Day here, where the city really um, just eats this chorizo and drinks cider. And I think last year we ate uh, approximately seven tons of oh. chistorra in one day. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot so. of sausage. A lot of sausage. <laughs> Crazy Basque. Well, you mentioned they drink cider. So there, tell me about a, a little bit about the cider houses and the, and the cider house dinners. Well, uh, here there's always been a great tradition of cider. Uh, it's known for the whale hunters to have taken cider abroad on the, on the boats when they went to uh, four months uh, fishing. But um, the, the cider houses are something quite peculiar, and I always tend to explain to people that it's a little bit like a medieval setup, on the sense that it's a, an old farmhouse with very long wooden tables and benches, and everybody goes there to eat the cider from the big barrels, the tanks, that ranges between fourteen and 24,000 liters, wow. and uh, eat a very traditional set menu here which is based on uh, the chistorra, the chorizo, uh, some salted cod, of course, that we love, um, big steak, this is extremely important here also, mm. and uh, then as I said, everybody eats the local cheese with walnuts and queens. But the origins are um, really is quite, I don't know if it will surprise you, but this started because on the bars and on the gastronomic societies, they used to buy the cider for the year, and they will go first to try it to the cider house. And uh, over there, they will give them a little bit of food while they were tasting. And it became popular. People started gathering there, and they, on the end, they decided, uh, well, you know, it seems like a good business, a good way of having some good times. And now everybody goes to the cider houses to have a, a good dinner. And, of course, sing a little bit if we drink enough cider. Yeah. And then isn't there the tradition of opening that barrel and, and yes, filling uh, the glass? There is, uh, when you arrive to the cider house, the first thing they give you is a cider glass, an empty cider glass. So you sit down in the table, which in most of the occasions doesn't have plates, so everybody eats from the trays in the middle of the table. And every time they scream, church which in Basque language is the uh, name of the little wooden cork that they used on the olden days to close the barrels, that means that they opened a new barrel, and people get up, get nearby, and cures to catch the cider uh-huh. from the top of the barrel. It's really a very uh, magic uh, yeah. kind of a ceremony. Oh, it sounds, it sounds wonderful. Did not have a chance to get to one of those, but next time around, I definitely will. Can't let any of that cider spill on the floor, right? Got to put it all in glasses. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always say that it's very important when you go to a cider house, never wear beautiful shoes. Huh. Because the cider pours uh, very freely everywhere. So. <laughs> and of course, then they all say, topa. 
right? Topa. So, topa. Topa. Cheers, right? Even, That's a word for cheers. Topa is a very casual way of uh, saying cheers here, although the best-known uh, Basque word is Osasuna, Osasuna, which means health. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, of Otrasante. It's a very popular all over the world then. Asasunte. Okay. Osasuna. Asasuna. Asasuna. Okay, got to write that one down. All right, great. Okay, now we have to move on to pinchos. The discussion would not mm-hmm. be complete without talking about pinchos. Now, most people are familiar with tapas and the word tapas. I mean, it's sort of spread mm-hmm. around the world, you know, and a lot of restaurants, in fact, offer tapas and at uh, cocktail time, um, which are little bites or d'oeuvres, but pinchos are mm-hmm. a bit more special, and that's very Basque, correct? Indeed. Um, the, there is a small difference between tapas and pinchos that's probably um, easy to understand, and it's the fact that tapas is a very casual way of eating uh, in a bar, standing up, or, but it doesn't actually specify the size of the dish. So a plate of ham is a tapa. Mm-hmm. A little dish full of olives is a tapa. While pinchos are little bites. Um, it's something that you eat in two or three bites. And the origins are quite curious, actually, because um, they started well over 100 years ago when men used to gather together to drink in cellars or shops where they sold the wine from the barrels. And uh, obviously to drink... They had to eat something. Here we always mix drink and food. So what they did is basically open jars of preserved food like tuna, anchovies, uh, pickles, and just very casually took a piece of bread and put two or three layers of the food hold by a toothpick. Mm-hmm. So the toothpick is the pincho. That's what that, so you call toothpick pincho. Exactly. A pincho is a skewer. Uh-huh. And so... But in the bars, I, I mean, there are literally uh, oh, uh, almost 200 or more probably bars in the, well, especially in the old town, but even in the new part of town, all the bars oh, yes. offer pinchos, right? Or not all the bars, but most of them. Yeah, most of them. In the old town, there's over 100 pincho bars. Overwhelming. Just in this, it is overwhelming. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. And the beauty of it is that along the years, uh, of course, the competition among bars started... Um, and they, they introduce new ingredients to the pinchos, more elaborated, more beautiful, to see who, who had uh, the newest idea, basically. And uh, that's how you find these wonderful displays on the bars. Well, you but mentioned... But I think... Uh, sorry, excuse me. No, no, go, go, go. Uh, no. Uh, the, the, actually, I think one of the, some of the pinchos that you try with me, mm-hmm. you, can, uh, uh, you must admit that they are really uh, more like a miniature fine cuisine. Absolutely. It's yeah, incredible. Yeah. This is a, a new thing that started about 15 years ago, and some adventurous younger chefs started introducing um, new ingredients, new forms of presenting things, and um, they are actually pinchos, or we consider them to be pinchos, but they get eaten with a fork and a knife. And, and these are, are right, and, the, and these are some that you, you know, basically order from a um, a blackboard menu, right? Or even a written menu. There you go. Yeah. But there you go. Each, each bar is going to have a beautiful display, but always the specials, the things that they prepare on the spot, will be on the blackboard. Yeah. And, what and a, those, in my opinion, are the very best ones. Well, it's a wonderful opportunity for a chef to exercise new ideas and show off some of the, you know, the, the 
uh, the skills in cooking too to have a little bit more right and hot there a lot of them are hot but on the bar Uh laid out on the bar it's just i was flabbergasted with how many how many choices that i mean just you know a bar let's say 15 feet and then turn the corner another 15 feet all just laden with (laughs) with different preparations now what about some are on bread and some aren't on bread was there a particular reason? Well, um, as the origins were, as I explained earlier, the fact that they use a little piece of bread and two or three things over the top, the most traditional pinchers will have a slice of bread, of bread on the bottom mm-hmm. and then two or three layers of ingredients over it. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem I find with the, the pinchers with the bread, we tend to, to have them when we are only waiting for somebody or if we have a little break, it's extremely convenient. It's very easy. It's what we consider to be fast food. But, uh, you know, um, as things have been re- re- being refined in certain extent, what the bread started disappearing to make things a little bit lighter, a little bit more, uh, perhaps, more gourmet. Oh, and not so just... And also, I can understand if you eat, you know, you can only eat a couple of them if there's a big... You know, chunk of bread on the bottom of each one, you get filled up. There you go. Ah. Unless you are a Basque, of course. You- <laughs> okay. <laughs> I noticed that. I could not keep up, I have to admit. I had a hard time. But there is there's, there's this wonderful tradition of, of, of going for pinchos, whether it's lunchtime or, or in the evening, and you don't just pay your respects and, or pay homage to one chef and one bar. Talk about that, the whole tradition, the culture of, of eating pinchos and drinking, of course. Well, pinchos in reality um, is not just about the food. It's not just about the, the, the drink. It's about gathering together. Uh-huh. Um, most of us, uh, we live in a small apartments here. Very rarely we uh, have a good space to have a dining room. So the house is kept more for family events. And whenever we are going to meet with friends, we always will do it in bars, you know. And so the idea with the pinchos is to, to have a little something in each place, small glass of wine or small beer, and then move to the next bar. And so how many bars, how many bars, bars do you do in one, in, in one day? Well, <laughs> all will depend, okay? Let me tell you, um, for example, if I am going to go out for dinner with some friends, we will never meet at the restaurant. Uh-huh. You know, we will say, okay, let's let's meet in this street, in this bar, at around this time. We will go to two or three bars, have a few glasses of wine, maybe pick a couple of pinchos, um, and that will be it, of course, because we are going to have dinner afterwards. But uh, actually, pinchos have become so beautiful, so wonderful, that in many occasions, we start with pinchos and we finish with pinchos. So... If it's going to be that way, we'll probably will go to five, six bars in one wow. evening. Wow. Not a problem. <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> and you're right, though. I mean, it, the, the food is, is so abundant. I mean, they're little bites, but they're, but they're very rich and very um, and, and varied. And there's always more than one or two ingredients in each, in each one, on each yes. one, on each bite, right? Um, is there- Normally, I think it's very simple, but I think uh, what we are very good at in here is finding good combinations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and actually, not to be cowards about it. Sometimes people are too preoccupied if uh, something matches with something. 
let's try, let's see. Let's, if you like it, probably somebody else is going to like it as well. And you find incredible things that you could have never imagined. Uh-huh. Uh, they were going to be served together. And, you know, it's just a little bit about that. It will be in adventures, perhaps. Right. And then down to the most simple things. Of course, anchovies were everywhere. And, um, oh. <laughs> and then you introduced me to the Gilda. Tell me about the Gilda. Mm-hmm. Well, the Gilda is probably the most famous uh, pincho there is. Um, Extremely simple, but so flavorful. And this is something that um, started uh, in the 1940s. Um, I don't know if everybody will remember the very famous film with Rita Hayward and Glenn Ford. Well, um, remember those were Franco years. Mm -hmm. And Franco, in many occasions, cut the films because thought that the actresses were showing a little bit too much flesh or the language wasn't too correct for uh, good Catholics like us. So um, apparently the story says that uh, there was this uh, bar owner behind the cathedral of San Sebastian that had a client who loved eating pickled peppers with anchovies and olives. So they would put them in a toothpick all together in a skewer. And um, as the flavor was so such an explosion, they decided I was hot and spicy like Rita Hayward <laughs> and Cole Gilda. <laughs> and they're also so and they're also beautiful to everywhere. look at. And they're beautiful to look at too. The they uh, are really it's very fresh green color. Yeah. Yes, of course. They are, are they the Guindillo peppers or the Uh huh. Yeah. The Guindillo peppers is something that uh during the season we will eat fresh, uh, fried with a little bit of salt. But we pickle to have during the year because also apart from uh, in some pinchos and salads like tomato salad and tuna, we also eat them a lot with pulses. Uh-huh. As we make very heavy uh, pulses dishes with um, beans, beans yeah. with lentils, we add lots of pork to these stews. The green peppers, the pickled peppers, break a little bit of heaviness. And normally whenever uh, you go to a restaurant and you get served, a nice dish with black olives, uh, sorry, excuse me, with black beans or with uh, lentils. They will give you a plate with the pickled peppers, olive oil, and salt. That's a great break, great break from the, you're right, from the heaviness. Well, we have to talk about um, another tradition, and that has to do with men, but we're going to take mm. a short break. So stay with us, and we'll come back and talk about more about the food of the Basque region. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lilypool Terrace. Executive chef Morgan Jarrett's unique menu offers warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jenna Liute, and I'm the host of Eating Matters here on HRN. Join me as I talk to food systems experts about the issues that shape our experiences of buying, cooking, and eating food. 
You can find Eating Matters wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Lourdes uh, Erquicia. She is a native of San Sebastian in the Basque region, talking all, and a culinary guide as well. What a culinary guide. Believe me, she introduced me to <laughs> such wonderful flavors. And we happened upon something that I was very curious about, and those are the men's gastronomic clubs. Tell me a little bit about that, Lord, and how, where, where does this all come from? And what, well, what are uh, they, and what are they? Well, actually, they are, uh, I think, one of the most beautiful and fantastic things that we have in the Basque Country. Um, men's clubs is something that had a history of over 100 years, and unlike... Um, in other countries where men's clubs are about men gathering together to eat and drink, here also means that the men have to cook for themselves. Hmm. Uh, well, uh, yeah, because they reckon that uh, years ago, uh, when men, many of men dedicated themselves to fishing, they were away for quite a long time, so women would administrate the house. And apparently, we didn't uh, give them a good break. We didn't hardly gave them any pocket money. <laughs> so they had to find a, a way of enjoying uh, that worked a little bit cheaply. So what they did is they joined the money, and they started renting. Uh, nowadays, most of them, they own them. But they, they will take these premises, and they will equip them with kitchens. So until not that long ago, they were exclusively for men. And they are very special because uh, each single member, I think nowadays the average of members per club is 170 members, each of them has a key, has access, free access to these places. And trust me, the kitchens are equipped like in a restaurant. Mm. Big burners, griddles, ovens are amazing. So a member will decide to invite maybe 10 friends. They will buy the fresh product, take it to the gastronomic society, and they have to cook them for themselves. And it's wonderful because at times you may get three, four, five groups of people, of men, uh, at the same time. So they share recipes, they help each other cooking. And, um, of course, at times women, we felt a little bit jealous yeah, of what they had. <laughs> and we wanted to join, but um, each of them have got their own rules, and some of them... On the last few years, I started allowing women uh, to go in the evening, some of them uh, on the weekends. There is very traditional ones that only will allow us to go in uh, two or three times a year. But when we go there, they don't allow us to do anything. We are queens. We oh, sit down. Nice. They prepare everything for us. Uh, and they do basically everything because they reckon that if we will go into the kitchen, we will tell them what to do. <laughs> So it's, it's, a, it's a funny tradition, but it, it works. It, it makes it very beautiful for us as well. Uh, apart from washing up, they don't wash up, okay? With the money they pay monthly, they contract somebody to go daily and do the washing up for everybody. So they have to pay a membership fee to belong to one of these clubs, but then they have to buy all their own food and come in and do all their cooking. Exactly. But they, they have pay, the privacy. Generally what they do is to join, uh, they will pay a fixed uh, rate of maybe 700 euros approximately. Uh, and then uh, monthly they pay between 20 and 30 euros a month. And this gives them the right to, to go, away. as I said, they have free access. What it is very peculiar, and I think um, 
cannot work uh, in many places is the fact that because there is nobody supervising, there is a cellar where they keep wine, they keep liqueurs, they can make themselves some coffees, and uh, what they do, there is a price list. On the end, they count how many bottles of each they had, and they make their own bill. Huh. They put the money in an envelope and the envelope in a box. So it's and an it it's, it's an honor system and it works. Huh? It is an honor system yeah. completely. Well, uh, just so you so you get a, a kind of um, an idea of how important they are here uh, in San Sebastian with 185,000 uh, inhabitants. There is 119 gastronomic societies. Huh. Interesting. That's incredible. And, and each has about 170 members. So do That's the math. Average. Yeah, do the math. Huh? Exactly. <laughs> wow. Um, well, I did. You did. You showed me one of them, which is um, one of the older ones that was 100 years old. Mm-hmm. Been in the same place the whole time. Yes, that one has. Well, actually, that one uh, that I show you is peculiar because. Um, Originally, the members belonged to another gastronomic society, but there were some disagreements, and they decided to open their own one. In, in I think I seem to remember it was 1916, but it's considered one of the most traditional ones, and for sure, women only can get there three times a year: huh, in Christmas, on the day of San Sebastian. And on the day of the Virgin of the Choir, which is another same patron that we have here in August, that's it. So that's it. Wow. Uh, I mean, it's 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 a very curious um, thing, and I think it's great. Um, have they? Do you know? Have they evolved at all into? Would you call them gourmet clubs, or are they just just whatever family recipes or fam- recipes they've picked up along the time? Mainly, they will cook very traditional food. Uh-huh. But of course, you know, uh, when men um, cook, I think uh, the, their pride takes a very good part of the of the whole process. And it's very typical to find groups of friends that, as they go weekly, and each of them uh, takes uh, the, in charge, they are in charge to cook. If somebody cooks something wonderful. The one going next week is going to try to do something even better. Uh-huh. Competition. And in many occasions, they can they can uh, make amazing dishes, incredible dishes. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, it's interesting because most, as we, you and I had spoken, it, you know, it's most chefs over history in in restaurants, certainly fancy restaurants, have been men, and. Um, there is this desire for them to cook and compete and, and excel. I mean, the women were home cooking all the time because they, they had exactly. to cook you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day for the family. But, they, but the men were out there creating these new dishes. That's a, it's an interesting, interesting tradition. Along with all that tradition, as you've mentioned, they'd go to the cellar and get wines. And you had mentioned briefly earlier in our discussion that, of course, just – to the uh, just to the south, I believe it is, is the Rioja region. So there's yes. yeah, they're fine wines. Um, but then there is a special wine of the uh, of the Basque region, particularly in San Sebastian. And uh, tell us about that. The white, the Chacoli. Chacoli, that is the name. Okay. Chacoli is a wine that's extremely peculiar. It's a wine uh, that we produce on the coast. Uh, 
of this counting Berenia San Sebastian, although they are also making it now in uh, Vizcaya, in Bilbao, huh. and a little bit in Alaba, more to the south. But the, the, the one that has got the denomination of origin is the Gueteria area, fishing uh, um, area about 20 minutes from San Sebastian. And it's a wine that we produce with an autochthonous grape called Ondarribi Suri. And it's a grape that um, actually wasn't utilized very much and nearly disappeared. So we started producing wine not that long ago, about uh, 90 years ago. And uh, on those years, of course, we were red wine drinkers and cider drinkers. So we will make this wine, and the grape is very acidic. The, the, the uh, floor is very minerally. So it is very common for people to comment that the wine reminds them of green apples. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. at times, uh, once you drink it, people notice on the side of the tip of the tank a little bit of saltiness because all the vineyards are by the seaside. There is plenty of salt in the, in the floor and also, of course, in the air. So it makes it very peculiar. And when we serve it, I hope you remember because it's really a, a very um, kind of a big tradition. We serve the wine from high. We call it breaking. Uh-huh. Just a little bit like cider. Yeah, so there is a, is the, it bubbles up a little bit. There's a little bit of, of bubbles on yes. foam on the surface. And it tastes exactly. slightly we get, we get effervescent. a little bit of carbonic. Yeah, it tastes a little actually, effervescent. Not, not a lot, but a little effervescent. Not a lot, yeah. exactly. It's, it's just a little touch. But when we started doing uh, this pouring, was because as we didn't drink the white wine, it will stay on the bottles for a long time. And it needed aerating. Uh-huh. So we will get this by pouring it from high. Of course, uh, nowadays it's not necessary, but we love the tradition and we carry <laughs> on doing it. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful kind of ceremony. Oh, it is. It's a great thing. And it, it adds to the whole, the whole celebration and tradition of, of, the, of going to the Pincho Bar and having the, the chocolate. And, and it goes perfectly with all the different um, flavors. The, there are so many different flavors in the food that this white crisp wine is certainly something to wash it down with well and it tastes great yeah i'm glad you like it i did i did uh there were so many great wines and uh obviously there's you know the reason being in the in the uh, hills and the wine you can see the vines growing along the hills when you you know take a drive out into the countryside and it's it's great Wonderful. Well, this has just been a wonderful talk, and I, there's so much more to learn about the area. I hope people will be inspired to go and travel. And um, fortunate that I was there, I think, in a time when it wasn't too crowded. I know it gets, you know, like any other major uh, tourist attraction, gets really packed during the summer. Of course, then you have the beaches and the sea, and the and that's that's another attraction. But it seems to me that even with the beaches and the seaside. Food is is certainly the main attraction, would you say? I, I definitely, and not just for the visitors, but for locals as well. That's we, the important, we, yeah. We live for food, that, that, That's the important thing. What did you tell me? You said, "Oh, um, I was. I think I was bemoaning the fact that I couldn't eat another pincho." And you said, and we were saying, "But now, when are we going to have dinner?" And you said, "That's the whole thing that you're always thinking about the next meal. You're always planning exactly, meals. Yeah. exactly. That that's the way we live. <laughs> you know, I hope nobody can try to cut us. 
<laughs> from doing it this way. Well, it's certainly a wonderful tradition, and, and I enjoyed all of your history that you shared with me, both when I visited and today on the show. And I, and I think that it, it explains a lot to people about what, you know, what, what the whole tradition of, of eating is all about and the food. And thank you again for sharing your time. Big pleasure, Linda, and I hope to see you here very soon again. Yeah, I think you will. <laughs> and thank you for listening. Yeah, and thank you for listening. This has been another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.